Please turn to the book of Genesis, to chapter 3, verse 15. Father, give me grace, the grace of your Holy Spirit, to anoint me, to anoint my speech, the words, in the manner that the truth that you have delivered through your prophet Moses and the other prophets and the apostles would be made more clear to our minds and to our hearts. To the glory of Jesus. Amen. This morning we return, and it kind of catch you up. It's what we've been doing. We return back to history. The redemptive history through the Bible. What we have been and what we have done. We have seen in Genesis chapter 1-1 all the way to 2-3, God created everything and ultimately mankind for His glory. Then, as we follow the timeline of Scripture in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 3, we saw the fall of man. Original sin. Every human being in Adam fell. And we saw God upholding His justice, His glory through the punishment of wrath. And before we got back in here, we said, look at mercy from the get-go And we jumped forward to see why that could happen. That God is showing and has been showing mercy and grace from the cross of Jesus Christ, who is as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so we've done that to have a theological understanding of God and His mercy, His work and His wrath as a backdrop, as an undergirding, and now we pick up again. And this morning we want to see what's going on in the story in the narrative, especially what is or who are the seed or the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent or Satan. And we will see Genesis itself, the narrative, unfold the answer to that. Genesis 3.15, if you would read with me. God is speaking. After the fall... And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, note first the word translated in my text, offspring, is the word you can translate as seed. It's a singular noun, but it's one of those nouns that has a collective meaning, like a team. If you're on, I'm on that baseball team. Team is singular, not teams, plural, team. But you understand, if you're on the team, it's got a collective meaning, right? There's a bunch that belong to that team. Well, the same with this word. It's the way you say, of the woman's seed, descendants. Offspring, Satan's seed, offspring. 
But it can also be meaning that one seed. Paul used this play on words. If you remember in Galatians referring to Abraham, the promise to Abraham, you and your same word, seed will be blessed. And then Paul makes a place as it says, seed, singular, not plural, as in many, referring to Christ is that ultimate seed of Abraham. Now, Paul's not a dummy. Paul knows it's an appropriate exegetical conclusion in Genesis concerning Abraham that it has this very contextual and immediate meaning of all of Abraham's descendants through Isaac, Jacob, the twelve sons, all their children are the seed also. So also here, we have this twofold meaning going on. It could mean collective descendants of the woman and of the serpent and ultimately mean also Jesus. That Jesus ultimately is that seed coming in the future because it says right there, He will, who? The seed will, not the woman, I will put in between you and the woman, but ultimately her seed will crush, and not your seed, Satan, but you. The end there. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall crush, or excuse me, bruise him just on the heel. Yeah, there's pain in the cross. And now I see that Satan is still around. The woman is long dead. So that's an appropriate understanding in the end that it's referring to them. But here's the thing now. This morning, though, in the immediate context as we go through redemptive history, what is God up to in the narration of this through the human author Moses, ultimately? What is going on contextually? And that's going to bring us to ask two big questions. Who are the seed of the woman in Genesis? And who are the seed of the serpent? And the answer that I'm going to contend this morning is this. The seed of the woman in the text of Genesis are born-again people. And the seed of the serpent are the not-born-again people. The seed of the woman is this line of the regenerate. The seed of the serpent or of Satan are those who are not regenerate. Read with me chapter 4. I'm going to read the first ten verses of Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard or was pleased with Abel. He had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, was not pleased. So, Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, well, what's right, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and murdered him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I think it's clear in the narration of Genesis that Cain is the seed of the serpent. Especially, look, because if you look at the text, just a few verses after God makes this prediction, and not only that, He says, what I got I'm going to do, I am going to put enmity between your seed, serpent, and the woman's seed. And a few verses later, boom, here's this story of a specific example of hatred, enmity, jealousy between Cain and Abel. So much so that Cain kills Abel. Cain is the first example of the seed of the woman prophesied about. I mean, seed of the serpent prophesied about. And Abel is the seed of the woman. What makes this crystal clear in the narration of Genesis, as he's going to go on, the narrator, the storyteller, will give the lineage of Cain now, and it is terribly dark and sinful. Then he'll give the lineage of Seth can't do Abel. He's dead. And when you see the text makes it clear, Seth is a replacement for Abel. Here's the line of the seed of the woman and then this stark raving difference between both lines. We'll see that. But if you jump forward, Jesus had no problem making this statement to religious, unregenerate people, Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. uh, Yes, human beings. There's a way in which Jesus knows Bible and He accuses them. And Satan is not a human. He's an angelic fallen being. But He says, you are of the lineage, the seed of the devil. And you go to the last book of the Bible. We're at the very beginning of the Bible. You go to the very last of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, verses 15 to 17, there's a clear depiction of a battle between, and here's the word, the serpent, also called the dragon, and godly people, who are clearly called here the seed of the woman. I quote Revelation 12:15 to 17. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river like the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious. This is the serpent. This is Satan. became furious with the woman. 
and went to make war on the rest of her, hear me, offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In the Genesis text, it's clear Cain is the seed of the serpent. Abel is the seed of the woman. What makes the difference between them? Here's, I think, the clear answer. The motive going on in their heart when they gave their offering. Verses 2-5, to chapter 4 of Genesis again. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord was pleased, had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he wasn't pleased. This is the way things going on. Cain, it's time to go to church. It's time to give of the fruit of my labor that God is the one who supplies everything. The reason I could work, the reason I could have sheep is God. I'm utterly dependent and I see how wonderful He is. I can't wait to get there and give Him, as the text says, see it. The narrator puts it there on purpose. The firstborn. He thought about, how, what am I going to offer to God? And the, the, the fat portion, not just any old sheep. He couldn't wait. He loved to worship God, he found great joy in him. Cain also went to church. Grabbed any old pumpkin out of his ground. Probably thought to himself, one less pumpkin for me. That's what's going on. The difference is the motivation of the heart in Abel as opposed to Cain. The difference is not. Sometimes people like to say Abel's was a blood offering because it was an animal and Cain's was a vegetable. No! There is no evidence up to this point in redemptive history that that made a difference whatsoever. The difference is that Cain, I mean Abel, loved God. He couldn't wait. It was his joy to take one of the firstborn of his sheep and slaughter it as a sacrifice. And Cain didn't see God that way. Did his religious duty. One less head of lettuce or whatever it was for me. See, for Cain... It's biblically, it is. I mean, here, I told you, honey, catch me. For Abel, biblically, the motivation going on is that God is the source of his joy in that offering. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, is crystal clear. Hear it. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, and through which 
Abel was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel was a person who had saving faith in God. He's a perfect example for you Christians to follow. What was the problem with Cain? He didn't have faith. He wasn't a man who had saving faith. That thing birthed in the heart. That says, oh, he's my treasure, as Jesus said. Jesus describes faith as a man stumbling over treasure in the field. He goes, covers it up. It's not his field. Sells everything he can to buy the field. It's so precious. That's not Cain. He didn't have a heart of faith. And we know clearly, don't we, through Paul, that whatsoever is not of, from the motivation coming forth from, a heart of faith, including your offering, Cain, is sin. Just two verses down from, by faith, Abel, listen to the writer of the Hebrews, verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to plead. God. Why? Read on. Because whoever would draw near to God must have this going on. Believe that He exists. And not only that, but that He rewards those who seek Him. Abel knew that. It's my joy. You're the source of my life in my sheep, in my breath, and my Take it all, God, if you want, was his motivation. For Cain, he did not have that going on towards God inside of himself. Now, Cain, when he saw God's pleased with that and not pleased with him, he got angry. And you think, well, why did he get angry? Didn't he? See, he wants God's blessing. No, not like Abel. See, humanity, we, Birthed in sin are utterly religious people. We will always be trying to make a God who would look at us and say, Yay! You're great! That's what religion is. Outside of Christ, and we saw the last couple of weeks, the atonement, where God's going to find Himself by causing us to say, yea, God, you're great. But religion, false religions, and all the subtlety that comes even within the biblical religions, Christianity and Judaism, turns it upside down into legalism. Cain would have loved God to say, great, Cain, because he came with a heart of independence. Yeah, look at me. I'm a good farmer. Look at my crop. Let me bring that to God. What's He got to say to me? That's what's going on in Cain. And God says to him in verses 6 to 7, look at it, chapter 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? You know what that is. You're mad, you're sad. And God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Like I accepted Abel? If you do not do well, if you do not come to me in faith, sin is crouching at the door. 
and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Let me just paraphrase what I think is going on right there. Cain, if you would turn away from your self-sufficiency and independence and wanting to be praised and turn to childlike faith and dependence upon Me, find Me as your delight, not your boasting in what you could do, you'll find real joy in that and I would happily delight in your offering. But Cain, if you don't turn away, call repentance, away from your independence that was birthed in the garden and you were born with, then a terrible future awaits you. Your sinful inclinations to exalt yourself are like a deadly, ravenous animal scratching at your front door. Cain's response from his heart, all he could do. I'm so angry, and I gotta get that vacuum that causes me to be so angry at this situation, satisfied and filled, and the way he chose to do it was to kill Abel. So, what we're seeing, therefore. The Cain and Abel story in the book of Genesis is a clear example of the enmity that God predicted in Genesis 3.15. The difference was that there was a whole massively motivational worldview in Abel that made him utterly different than Cain. Here's the question. Why? I mean, be thinkers, Christians. Why? The answer is right in the text. Genesis 3.15. Why did Abel come with a heart of faith? Why was thus God was pleased with him and Cain not? It says it right there, Genesis 3.15. God speaking to the serpent. I, God, will put enmity, division, separation, hatred between your offspring, serpent, Satan, and the woman's offspring. Hope you're catching that. God put enmity between Abel and Cain by causing Cain, I mean Abel, to be born again. This brings up that big question. What is God's role here in this Cain and Abel story? Let's go back over the last number of weeks where we've been because you've got to feel the problem. Haven't we seen that in the fall of mankind in the garden with Adam and Eve, it wasn't just that they sinned the next day, okay, let's get up and try again. Mankind and all human beings, all of their seed, up to us today, 
into the end of time are born in a state of sin. Spiritual death. Total corruption of the heart. Argue that a few weeks ago. From birth, we are all unregenerate. Not alive to God. We don't have any true inclination to enjoy God. We don't have. That's the, we call the, in, in history of theology, it's called original sin. It doesn't mean that original sin. It means that we're all born with original sin. We are born into this world. We are conceived in our mother's womb with a darkened, lights out, not sick or comatose, but dead to God. Abel was totally, sinfully depraved. When he was born, he was totally dead to any desire to trust in God. Totally dead to have any true faith in God. Just as much as Cain. How do we understand the story? Unless what I've just said there and argued a couple weeks ago is just wrong. It's very simple. And we see it throughout the rest of Scripture. And we're supposed to infer that here. Hebrew writer lets us know. How did he have faith? He had it. At some point, our text says, God put enmity between the two. And since it's... Because Abel has faith and Cain does it, it means that God's action of putting enmity means what He did is give Abel a new heart to trust in Him. See, naturally, being born into this woman, they even came out of the same mother, the same womb. There was no difference spiritually between Cain and Abel. But then God God, from His freedom, chose to regenerate Abel. He chose to cause Abel to be born again and not Cain. Just, I'm going to read and let the words sit on you. They deserve 20 sermons, I know. But the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 sees God in the world this way. Romans 9, verses 15 18, the Apostle Paul says, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on the person who can run the fast. If you're looking at your text, you should be shaking your head no. Doesn't say that. I will have mercy on the churchgoer. I will have mercy on the person with a spiritual inclination. Okay, now let's read it. 
I want you, you've got to feel, we're supposed to feel the words. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. No. I know it sounds like you're saying that, Paul, but you can't mean what that sounds like. Because you make it sound like, Paul, it depends on nothing Abel can do. So let's see what he goes on to say to make sure maybe he's got a better interpretation than what a natural interpretation would be. So Paul goes on to verse 16. So then... What am I saying, Paul says? So then, mercy depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's a stunning text. Stunning text. He goes on, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. No, just stop. He means the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Moses the Exodus. Here's the point that he's going to get at. God wanted to glorify Himself. God would not have seen it to be the most perfect unfolding of redemptive history if there were only one plague. Or only three plagues. Or only eight plagues. He wanted Pharaoh to give in and then to say, no, you can't go. Give in, no, you can't go. No, you can't go. No, you can't go. So that he could demonstrate his glory and his power throughout human history and for all of eternity in what happened in the Exodus with ten plagues. So Paul says, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up that I might demonstrate my power through you. Wow. And that my name, here's his ultimate goal, might be proclaimed in all the earth. And Paul concludes, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. God said, I will put enmity between your seed, Satan, and your seed, or the seed of the woman, a godly line. And He did it according to His will. That's why Abel was alive to God in new birth, and Cain wasn't. Abel came to treasure God. From a sinful, broken state, something happened. And from that happening of God doing something in His heart by His Spirit, God became His joy. But Cain was not regenerate. That action did not happen to him like happened to Abel. Now, notice in the Genesis text, God goes, and we just saw, He does counsel Cain. He gives a word. He tells Cain the truth. Cain, 
Do well. Do what's right. In other words, Jesus says, Paul says, we are to say as Christian people today, get on the TV, Billy Graham, people listen to him, repent. Trust in Christ. Here's Jesus. God has appointed a man to bear the wrath for all who would believe in Him. Believe! That's essentially what God's saying to Cain without the knowledge of the human Historical person, Jesus. This That's what He's saying. Repent. Do it. He said the same thing to Abel. Abel. Okay, they both, they both have the... Here it is. This is what we call this to understand Scripture. They both are called to come to faith. They both hear the general call. By general call, that means... Go out into the highways and byways and invite them in. It means go out to the utter Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and baptizing those who come. Preach it to every soul. Whosoever will come. That's the general call. That's why history is filled with circumstances on street corners and in church buildings and sitting on a couch in front of a TV watching a Billy Graham crusade, they're all hearing the general call. And you wonder, how come that guy in his drunken state and this guy in his drunken state, only one of them started thinking something about what he said. And that person, you go back five years later, is totally different. Worshiping God. And the other person says, what? They both heard... The call, trust in me, believe in me. Abel, come. Cain, come. Only Abel came because there's another kind of call. It's called the effectual call. It's the kind of call that when God calls a person one by one that way, you can't help but come. You don't want to help anymore. Something in that call itself awakened you. Use an illustration, a biblical illustration. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, died physically. Jesus made sure of it. He's sick. Okay, I'm going to stay here for two more days before I go. He was dead and in the tomb. For what is he, three days? Two days? He was dead. He was cold. He was hard. Jesus stands outside the cave tomb with a rock and He says, Lazarus, come. That's not the general call. That's a specific call that means when Jesus says that, it's effectual in that the call itself causes what He calls for to happen. Absolutely. Every time. Lazarus did not sit there and say, I wonder if I'll hear the call. The call caused him to come back to life. Let's see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 21, read through verse 24. Listen to the Apostle Paul. For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world did not know God through wisdom. Let's, let's put Cain and Abel there. Because this is all, we're all the same after the fall. Okay? Here's Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, they don't know the wisdom of God. and They're darkened. They can't. The world did not, excuse me, know God through its own wisdom. Neither did Abel. It pleased God, therefore, through the foolishness that we preach, to say, come, bring a sacrifice, because I'm your all in all. That's stupid. Cain proved how stupid that was, at least subjectively, to him. So we preach now, post-Christ, now it gets really radical, because we realize why Cain can be born again is because of Jesus Christ as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And now, post-Christ, we preach this crazy thing that God became a human being in order to die bearing the wrath of all who would be saved through Him. And that He lived a perfect life so that His life would be put to their account and God literally actually, physically resurrected him to a new form of life, that very physical body to which he's the first one raised from the dead. And all those who are in him will be raised like him one day. That's nutty. Unless, along with hearing Billy Graham, you hear it on a different level by a specific saving call of the God who is saved. And if you love Christ today, that's what happened. That Abel pleased God in his sacrifice is because that's what happened. Let me finish the text. Verse 22. Paul says, we go around the world preaching the Gospel. And Jews, they demand signs. And Greeks... Seek for wisdom. But we, we have a message to proclaim. Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. No one will be changed by it. It's what he's saying. This is his way of saying the whole world, the Jews and everyone else. Only two people in that sense in the Bible. The Jews and everyone else. And no one's going to be moved. we we'll go back to Abel and Cain, by hearing the counsel, do well, do what's right, won't be moved. Listen to the stunning next thing he says. Verse 24. But, to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. Let's stop. He's already got the whole universe here of humanity. Jews and Greeks. No one's coming. Stumbling block. Foolishness. But within those groups, not a different group, within the group, those who are called, some of them come to Christ. doesn't say that. But to those who are called from among both Jews and Greeks, Christ to them is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's a different kind of call. Paul says, we call, we preach, general call, (laughs) foolishness, stumbling block, but then on a different call to those who are called, 
And Christ personally to them becomes the power of God to salvation. Because they hear the contents of what you're preaching. That is reasonable. That makes all the sense in the world to me now. So for Cain, love me. Depend on me like Abel. I would be happy with you too. He did not find it reasonable. He couldn't because of the darkness of his heart. Because God did not overcome the radical depravity and corruption of the core of his being like he did for Abel. And so it makes sense in the narration of Genesis, in the story, that Cain and his descendants would be called the offspring of the serpent. Because they're living out exactly what the serpent was engendering in the garden. Independence from independence from God. Darkened soul, do my own thing. Now I'm going to pause again and just drive it home. Because what I am contending, and I want it to be crystal clear with no ambiguity, that the saints, that we call the Old Testament saints, in the Hebrew Scriptures, before Christ comes. In other words, those examples of faith-filled people, like Abel, like Enoch, like Noah, like Abraham, like Jeremiah, like David, were born again. No differently than anyone post-Christ that actually gets born again is born again. In other words, Something miraculous transpires in a dead spirit. It's raised to life to see the light of the glorious Gospel of Christ no matter at what time in human history. Yes, Abraham, if you would have said Jesus Christ, he said, what are you talking about? He knows now, but then he didn't. But what did happen is faith in the revelation that God had given, trust Him. That's why Abraham an Old Testament man can simply and easily be the example of New Testament faith. In the Old Testament, this regeneration or new birth is referred to as circumcision of the heart. Numbers of places. It's referred to as God giving you a new heart of flesh, soft, not hard and stony. In the New Testament, John chapter 1, it's called being born of God. Of course, John 3, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Titus, in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul calls it the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Peter says, God, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
So, regeneration, new birth, being born of God, circumcision of the heart, given a new heart of flesh, all of that is the reason why Abel loved God. And thus it produced an enmity between him, the regenerate, and his brother, the unregenerate. When you were looking through the Old Testament, Caleb and Joshua. You get 12 spies, spy out the land that God's supposed to bring us in, and God says He's going to give it to us. 12 go. 10 of them are unregenerate. Not born again. Two of them are born again. Caleb and Joshua. And that's why He said, we can take it. Why? God said. Heart of faith. Numbers 14.25 says it very distinctly, very clearly. Caleb had a different spirit than the other ten. And it says, thus he followed the Lord fully. Joshua, in Numbers 27.18, it says very clearly, he was indwelt by the Spirit. In other words, for instance, so Joshua and Caleb, as opposed to the other ten spies, they are what the Bible talks about as the remnant that God always has in the world that's existing. A remnant, the, the leftover, a portion are born again people. God has always had them throughout even ethnic Israel up to Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans 11, verses 2-6. to He says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, Old Testament guy, the prophet, how he appeals to God against Israel? They're all a bunch of reprobate, unregenerate. Most of them were. But he cries to God that way, and it says, The Lord... No, no, I'm sorry. Elijah goes on, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek to kill me. But what is God's reply to him? Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have 7,000 other people who are regenerate you know not about. And so Paul says, so too at the present time there is a remnant left over, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer based upon works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so, the enmity that God produced between Cain and Abel and their seeds and their line is because He caused Abel to be born again. If Abel were not born again, his sacrifice would not have pleased God. Romans 8, 7-9 is clear. He would have only been of the flesh without the work of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. It is not able to. Pun intended. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, Abel, in you, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, I find what I'm trying to say here, that every person you see is an example of faith. 
sinful, but of faith, like David, a man after God's own heart, Abraham, Noah, on and on, is because they were regenerated. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in their spirit like He does post-Christ to those who come to faith. Or those who come to faith is because He's come to dwell within their spirit. To understand that reality is so crucial to understand four-fifths of this book called the Bible. And I know a lot of us believers don't get what I just said there. And it's sad. Because there, if you, I'm talking about people who are born again. You could be born again and actually not understand what it really means and happened. But there are a lot of people that think you can do something to get born again. Come on up here and pray a prayer with me after, and if you say that prayer, you will be born again. And they may be born again, but they're wrong in their understanding. And the more that's wrong, the more confusing the Bible is going to get. It is a miracle and a work of God. And this lets us understand how Abel, how Enoch, how Noah, how Abraham, how Jeremiah, how David, how Daniel could actually be people of faith who loved God because God awakened them with the effectual call to faith. To deny that reality, we would have to say, look at that. Enoch walked with God. Noah was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God, even though they were hostile to God and an enemy of God. It wouldn't make any sense if they were left in their flesh without the work of the Spirit. Let me put it this way. Old Testament, New Testament are not the same as Old Covenant, New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament is an unfortunate separation of text of Scripture that happened in church history we can't undo. Old Covenant and New Covenant are biblical terms. In short, the Old Covenant is God giving the law, do this, don't do this, love me with all your heart, repent, turn, without giving the work of the Spirit so that they could do it. The promise of the New Covenant is that not only will He continue to give, love me, come to me, but He'll pour out His Spirit in a way unprecedented, regenerating hearts so that that could happen. I quote, for instance, hear this, it's from, coming from Bible, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, the prophet Ezekiel, long before Christ came, says, God says through him, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause, I, God, will cause you able... Okay, sorry. Let's look forward. Cause you able to walk in My statutes and to be careful to obey My rules. (coughs) Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 31, verse 31 to 34, God says through him, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant. Hear the Word. Hear Jesus also saying, this cup you drink, this bread you eat, is the new covenant in my blood. Fulfilling this prophecy. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Mosaic covenant. The law. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, God, will put My law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord! For miraculously they shall all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So here's the thing. All these Old Testament, before Christ, people that we get examples that loved God as opposed to the other ones with Israel who hated God, they are the examples of people who were born again. Let me say it this way. Though they lived in the period, the time frame of the Old Covenant, because the New Covenant is inaugurated with Jesus, though they lived during that time, they were New Covenant people. Misplaced. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, Are you a teacher of Israel? And when I talk to you about being born again, you don't know what I'm talking about? You were supposed to know. It's all over the Old Testament. You don't know that all these examples of faith to spiritually dead people is because I circumcised their heart? He's not saying something brand new. That's why he was, Jesus was correct to rebuke a so-called teacher of the Bible. Don't you know Nicodemus? And so Now very briefly, I'm going to get to what comes next. After Cain and Abel, he gives the lineage of Cain. The descendants or the offspring of of Cain in chapter 4 of Genesis. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but what you see there is stark compared to what we're going to see with the next lineage of the woman. With Cain, it says he married and he left the presence of God. And he went to the land of Nod. And then it says, very distinct, they, they, they built for themselves in years a city. It's working. Got a guy who does music, a guy who does this, a guy who makes shoes. The city, let's get together. Let's make this thing work. Let's be independent. This is what's coming through. Self-sufficiency. And then he names... You've got to think, why does God have the narrator put this stuff in there? It's purposeful. He says, I'm going to name the city after my son. His pride is rising up. Don't forget my son, Enoch, and me. Cain. And then five generations after Cain, it comes to one of his descendants, the seed of the serpent, Lamech, who became a ruler of the city. 
He became a polygamist. And then he wrote a song about himself. It says, quote, starting with verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, which God said to Cain, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Someone kill me, kill seventy-seven people. He is exalting himself. That's God purposed the story to be told that way. To see, I will put enmity between your offspring, Satan. Here it is. And the woman's. And so then he comes next to the woman's. To Seth. I pick up with verse 25 in chapter 4 of Genesis. After Cain's lineage, listen, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, quote, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. You got to hear this. Because this is what's purposely going on in the text. Okay? Seed of the woman, of the godly seed, regenerate people, Abel, killed. Going to replace this line with Seth. To Seth also a son was born. Very different, stark difference from Cain's lineage. A son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Notice the author's intention. It's a worship, faith, thus regenerate community. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Then you go to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them. And then He goes and He gives the descendants of Seth. So-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And it sharply contrasts with Cain. You get down to the seventh generation and you get Enoch who walked with God who found so much delight and joy in the presence of God that the text says, and God took him. Eoch was not anymore because God took him. And then you get to the grandson of Enoch and you get a man named Lamech who had hope in God and he prophesied that God's going to do something that needs to be done and it's going to happen through my son, Noah. This is the seed of the woman the line of those who were born again versus the seed of Cain, seed of the serpent, the line of the unregenerate. We'll stop there. We're going to pick up at that next week in Genesis 6. But this morning, first, there's a few lessons here. One is this. God's purpose of glorifying Himself will be accomplished. He started it the fall. Here it is. I will put enmity. I, God, will do it. Thus, God always, from the beginning, has a people. 
A people who are born again. That means a work of the Holy Spirit that caused their hearts to see God for the beauty and the joy and the treasure He is. From the get-go. He's doing it, not able, in our story. Paul said, as we saw in Romans 11, verses 5-6, to so at the present time, and it goes for today too, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, Christian, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Have you found yourself even this morning, like Abel, coming to offer sacrifice. Did you experience what Abel experienced when he brought his animal, when you brought your person and raised a hand or sang a word? If you came like Abel, Here's the instruction for us this morning. Be humbled. Learn that like Abel, like Seth, you also are of that line saved by grace. You were dead to God in your trespasses and sins, rebellious toward Him. And then, by grace, alone, you were awakened to the beauty of Christ. Then, God caused you to be born of His Spirit. To give you eyes to see. On Judgment Day, as you stand before God in that line, the line of the woman, of those who love God and are saved by His Son Christ, and you're asked to give an account of why are you in this lineage as opposed to over there with Cain and others like him. At that day, you will not say, because I am wiser and smarter and more spiritual than they. But with tears of joy and a type of a holy trembling, you'll say, thank you. Father, You are the One who has put the enmity between the godly line and the serpent's line, You are the One who has made me part of the remnant chosen by grace. And Father, may You leave none in here not chosen by grace To see the light, the beauty, 
the overwhelming power of joy that comes through the glory of Christ presented to our souls. And as we find ourselves loving Him, Father, may You do that precious miracle of glorifying Yourself and causing a deeper joy and stability in our lives to not wait until Judgment Day to say thank You only. May we see that reality in the here and the now. Covet now our worship, Father. Continue to do Your work through this sermon, through these words and the ensuing moments to the glory of Christ. Amen. Thank you.